Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the Critical Thinker at Large. I'm coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all the other normal platforms where uh, good podcasts are sold, and of course with video here on YouTube. And um, I wanted to start this week's episode. It is an interview that I am doing, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what this interview is and why I'm doing this and what I'm trying to accomplish. I am an education channel primarily. My, my primary function is to educate. Um, I decided to take that tack because I thought, well, getting information to people and giving them some suggestions or ideas as to what kind of actions they might be able to take in order to affect some change in the world, you know, in a more positive direction might be a good thing to do. And um, if I can, you know, take my own recovery, my own story, my own narrative and share it with other people, uh, get others to share their narratives and their stories and um, perhaps, you know, bring some sense and sensibility into the world, <laughs> then that would be a good thing, right? Well, it's been a frustrating journey in some ways and um, it's been a very, very, very rewarding journey in others. But I want to talk a little bit about the frustration because the rewards I talk about all the time and I have had a great deal of change and positive outcomes and a real true help to people over the years in doing this work. So I am not going to stop doing it and I'm going to, I'm going to keep going and, and I'm going to keep trying to help. Um, and, you know, and it might well be that I care too much and that I invest too much of myself in this sometimes and take things a little too personally. And I am certainly willing to own that. Um, I am troubled by the fact that um, we have further divides in the United States and seemingly in the Western world um, over the last few years, and of course, you know, uh, up until eight years ago, I was in a bubble world. I, I, I didn't know what life was like in the real world. Not really. And I didn't understand a lot of things because I had been raised and in, in indoctrinated in Scientology as my primary way of looking at the world. Coming out of that situation, seeing that that is a destructive thing, seeing that limiting and focusing our our view, uh, filtering our perceptions, you know, keeping ourselves tied down with beliefs and ideas that are really stupid is, is not a good thing to do, right? And that um, perhaps opening our eyes and looking around and seeing more of what the world has to offer and seeing more about what's actually going on in the world versus what we think is going on in the world you know, this is something that became very uh, important to me and something that I very much wanted to try to contribute to through my podcast. And I come at things through the angle of a cult, cult lenses. You know, I look at things through coercive control, and there is a lot of it out there at lots of different levels. You know, we have cults, we have gangs, we have human trafficking, we have situations of, of really bad relationships and domestic violence. All of these things are tied together by this thing we call coercive control. And it's quite a topic. Uh, cults, specifically destructive cults, right? Groups that people get involved in that they really don't totally fully understand and which overtake their ability to control their own lives because the group takes over. That's dangerous. You know, that's something we should be aware of. That's something we should all be watching out for. 
So if I have anything to offer to the world at large, it's that. It's, it's expounding on that and talking about that and, and, and trying to share the cautionary tale of my own life and my own experience and those of others. Well, in that regard, uh, four or five years ago, I started speaking out against Donald Trump. And I pissed a lot of people off because they were on the Trump train. And they thought that was a train that was going to a great place. Well, I think we can, I'd like to think that we could all agree that it hasn't gone to a great place and that we're worse off now than we were when he came around. Because that's just the fact of the matter, I think, as I see the world, as I interpret the world, that's how I see it. And I see a country that is more divided now than ever before. And I don't like that. And I want to do something about it. So that's what, I, that's what I try to do with this show. And this week, I'm welcoming a guest who is a political commentator. He's a professional political pundit, blogger, podcaster, news. Um, he's, he's been featured on CNN and, and other uh, news networks. He has been, his work has been put out in the New York Times and uh, other professional publications. So... If you think I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to politics, well, maybe you'll grant him some authority to, to real, you know, that he knows what he's talking about because he's been working on this stuff since 2000, the year 2000 and, uh, and, and earlier. So his name is Matthew Sheffield. And let me read you a little bit about what the New York Times had to say about him. Matthew Sheffield started his first conservative website in 2000, dedicating it to criticizing CBS News anchor Dan Rather, who Mr. Sheffield believed was a partisan liberal and not critical enough of President Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Remember all that? Mr. Sheffield then went on to help create Newsbuster. Another right-leaning website that criticized the mainstream media for liberal bias. Later, he became the founding online manager of the Washington Examiner, another popular outlet for conservative views. Okay, so this is a man who grew up and was part of the conservative side of things. Uh, he's 42, lives in Los Angeles, and he grew disillusioned with this whole thing. He also happens to be a former Mormon, and he grew up as a Mormon, and those beliefs informed his politics and his whole worldview, and we actually open up talking right about that. So let's go ahead and get into this podcast. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I enjoy doing it. And I hope you get something out of this in the direction of trying to mend fences, get connections, reach across the aisle, talk to people who you might not necessarily agree with, but maybe we can find more common ground than we can find reasons to hate each other. Okay, well, hi. Thank you very much for doing this show with me. I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to be on. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I have I have quite a few questions for you. First off, I thought the nature of my show and channel being fairly, uh, you know, centered around cults, high control groups, destructive activities like that. Let's go ahead and cover your background as a Mormon first, because I think that informs an awful lot of your current, you know, views and how you evolved over time as a political commentator. Yeah. Um, yeah, it did. And uh, it's because a lot of trends that I think we're now seeing as widespread among non-Mormon uh, fundamentalists are really, 
they kind of got their start in more high control, uh, you know, cultic religions like Mormonism, like Scientology, Jehovah's right. Witnesses, etc. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the Republican Party seems to have basically turned into a religious cult of its own. Um, yeah. And so... Um, yeah, so, uh, well, basically, my background is that, so I was uh, one of 10 children. Um, uh, two of my siblings died as infants, including my twin brother. Um, but our parents, yeah, they were, uh, they're, they're Mormon, and they were, you know, part of a, a multi-generational tradition of Mormonism. And, uh, you know, had several of their ancestors come out in the, uh, you know, across the, the Great Plains and the desert and settle Utah. Um, and so, um, and Mormonism, you know, from the very beginning was always very leader centric and very, you know, much about obedience. Um, but it actually kind of became even more so in the mid 20th or the late 20th century um, because they were trying to become perceived as more mainstream. And so they started cracking down on a lot of what they used to. There used to be a lot of local autonomy in Mormonism, uh, which was kind of rare for high control uh, uh, you know, demand high demand religions, uh, but it used to be that there was a lot of local congregations could kind of, you know, had a lot of uh, ability to make their own practices, and you know, they used to have a thing where congregations would put on musical plays for each other, uh, and you know, like they called them road shows, where they would pack, pack, make a set and pack it up and travel it around to different congregations. Um, but they eventually decided, well, you know what, we don't like that autonomy, and so we're going to start closing that down. Um, and that sort of really ran up against uh, my dad's personality and his own background. And um, I don't think he even realized what was happening in the larger context of Mormonism, but that is completely what was bothering him. And because he had been, he had discovered sort of the earlier charismatic type tradition of Mormonism in which, um, you know, their early leaders had all told people that they could be prophets um, and and receive revelation themselves. And uh, and so he, you know, he completely believes that and believes that he can, you know, have a, he has, he, he actually believes he has an ongoing daily constant conversation with the Holy Spirit. Um and about and, anything. And that's not wholly unusual for Mormons, as I understand. I mean, that, that business of being able to, anybody can rise up to profit status is, I mean, is there, I, I guess I've just never really asked the question, is there some sort of grooming or prep that's done for profits in the, in are there proto prophets? How does how? That's interesting. I've just well, never... yeah, it, it's no, it, it's a little bit tricky though because yeah, it, it, the tradition says that everybody has that ability as as members, um, but um, you can't you you're not authorized to do it um, to be a prophet unless unless the church itself has said that you could in terms of receiving revelation for more than just yourself. Um, so that's the so basically they um, you, you can you, it's and of course, you know, that 
it's this wholly invented idea because you know in the Bible, you know, there's the prophets in the Bible are routinely going out and saying, you know, hey king, you are doing this thing here and God says it's terrible. Or hey other prophet, you are unrighteous and God says that you're, you know, going to be killed for it. Um right. like that that sort of thing happens in in the um uh, in the Old Testament all the time. Um, and so, but basically that was sort of the the resolution that Mormonism had to, had to establish because in the early church, everybody was, was proclaiming revelations f- from, for the church. So like, and, and, and they believed in, they had a common belief in folk magic as well. And so. Oh, did they? Um, they did, yeah, and so, like, so the so Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, believed he told people that he translated the Book of Mormon by putting a magical rock oh, into course. a hat. Of course, um, of course, that's magic. <laughs> that's right, yeah, and so, right. um, but the thing is, other Mormons believe, had magical rocks too in early Mormonism. Oh, did they? And so. They did, yes. Uh, <laughs> so you don't hear about so, this too often. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. And so, but it started creating this this sort of um, you know epistemic crisis for Mormonism because if anybody could proclaim to have the the direct pipeline to God. Uh, well, then that basically meant that there was no, no one that was ever going to agree on it. <laughs> well, it's isn't uh, it funny to think about this in a histor in a in a in a in a truly realistic sense? How many mm-hmm. people do you think have stepped up and said, "I'm a prophet. Here's what I have to say," and oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. yet in the historical record, we only recognize. Paul and this person and this person and this person. There were probably mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70 prophets, you know, running around in mm-hmm. Jesus's time, going around to, you know, Pontius Pilate or whoever mm-hmm. the Goko government guys were and saying, hey, God said you got to do this. But we don't know anything about them because nobody wrote that down or bothered to care about those ones. You yeah, know? exactly. And uh, and so early Mormonism was having this crisis where people would go and do things and say, well, my I got a message on my rock that said I could do it. Uh, or, you know, I was I took out my dousing rods and they told me uh, that, that there was uh, that I should move to this city here and do this thing. Um, and so finally, Smith came up with the idea that, well, OK, so, yes, everybody can have revelation, but. I'm the only one that can do it for the church right. as a whole. Okay, so right. put put your put your uh, God back in the box there. Right. Um, right. And so, um, and so, uh, but as Mormonism worked to become try to become more perceived as a more mainstream Protestant denomination, they really had to expand the enforcement of that idea. Um, and so that really chafed with my dad and he uh, basically started uh, a ministry of his own to try to uh, convert Mormon or keep Mormons to the the older charismatic prophetic tradition. Uh, and so and then at the same time, also to try to convince, you know, regular non-Mormons or non-Christians to, you know, retain America's godly heritage, as, as he called it. Right. Um, right. And so uh, he 
did it. As, but the thing is, Mormonism doesn't have ministries. So you can't, in Mormonism, it's very hierarchical like Scientology. You can't go and start your own congregation. You can't, uh, you can't do anything on behalf of the church unless your central, if the central general authorities authorize you to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so his, his, you know, ad hoc um, ministry was, you know, completely without sanction. And he didn't really talk it up as such to the local leaders, but that's what it was. And so, um, but it constantly put him into to conflict with local Mormon authorities. And um, so as a result, we moved, uh, uh, you know, a whole bunch of times. I, I don't even know how many places I lived in <laughs> to count them all up. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, but I did in terms of schools, uh, like there were some times where we would live in multiple different residences or in our car while going to the same school. Uh, oh, wow. And so, yeah, but over my K through 12 career, um, while working on my uh, well, career, uh, <laughs> my, my kindergarten through high school years, um, I went to 19 different schools um, in a variety of different states. Um, and, you know, my dad would go and play classical guitar on the streets of cities and then pass out um, pamphlets um, that were basically collections of quotes that he liked. Um, and then sure, try to con- convert people to, right. you know, he was flexible on what he was trying to convert you to. So whether it was, you know, he would definitely like it if you were ascribing to his form of Mormonism. But, you know, if you went to regular Mormonism, that was fine. Or if you decided to become a Christian, you know, that was fine too. Um, wow. And so, you know, we did that for quite a while. <laughs> and then eventually um, I came up with the idea uh, that the rest of that, that the kids could join with him as well. So we started all doing that as well. All uh, the eight, eight of my siblings, we had our own uh, musical instruments and uh, played uh, classical music and sang uh, in various places across the country. Wow. Um, just sort of impromptu, yeah. just sort of touring around informally. Yeah, uh, yeah like, I mean, sometimes we had gigs. Well, or? sometimes, yeah, sometimes we had gigs and okay. sometimes we would just set up somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a mix. And, you know, sometimes he would uh, get permits for us to go and play in public spaces and things like that. Wow. Um, and, um, and then, you know, eventually, um, I don't know. I, I guess after all the, you know, revelations, quote unquote, that never really panned out, uh, it kind of started to weigh, <laughs> uh, weigh on, weigh on me after a while, um, that none of the things that I believed were going to happen were happening. Right. Um, and that, you know, the, you know, like the, the ways that that my that my parents wanted to run our ministry, uh, you know, that they thought were they said were God told them to do X, but it didn't work. You know, like like as an example, my dad, you know, he people kept saying, "Oh, you guys should have a CD of your music." Um, I would, you know, I'd love to get it, uh, but he he said he was prompted to not have a CD because we needed to have a video first. Uh, a, a VHS video, but we had no experience with video production and no money <laughs> to, 
do it. And so as a result, we never ended up with either a video or a CD. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and when we kept having things like that, you know, where ideas that he thought were divinely inspired just, you know, fell flat on their face and it just didn't work. Um, and, you know, and, and that kind of weighed on me in the back of my mind for a while. And eventually, you know, I decided to um, leave. Um, and also, um, it was, you know, I had been... I had started into politics with uh, one of my brothers. We had a, a website, ratherbias.com, where we were criticizing Dan Rather, the former CBS anchor. Right. And, uh, and this was um, around 2000? We launched it in 2000. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and, and to be honest, you know, we got tired of doing it after a few years. So we actually quit in 2002. Uh, but we got so much... Um, reader we kept the site online and people begged us to come back uh for the 2004 election so we said all right fine we will uh and then wow you know rather rather had his document scandal thing and catapulted our efforts into the national spotlight so you know we you know got quoted by every major newspaper and you know <clears throat> lots of different outlets and um you know and uh, and then that made me realize, oh, well, you know, I, I could actually have a career out of this because, frankly, you know, in our family, no one ever really thought about careers or, <laughs> uh, or, uh, or you know, like, how are you going to get money for yourself? That right. wasn't a thing. Like, we didn't really think about it. And part of that was that, you know, uh, my grandfather uh, had one of my grandfathers had, had given his descendant, his descendants inheritances so that we were able to, you know, scrape by to some degree without having to have a regular job. And my, and my dad hasn't really ever had one uh, wow. for a long time. But I and mean, 10 kids. Well, yeah, eight, eight. Of, but, well, yeah, yeah, sorry, more. eight. Yeah. To all, yes. In terms of surviving my, but that's, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I, I just can't even imagine the confusion, the the mouths to feed, the clothes—I mean, the logistics. I, your mother must have been quite something. Yeah, she she definitely kept it all together, um, and I, it, it enabled <laughs> a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and but I mean, there were definitely you know more than a few times where we had you know def did not have enough money to to uh, feed our, you know, to feed the family. And there were a bunch of periods in time in which we, you know, had, you know, no food for a day or two at a time. And, you know, sometimes we had to resort to, you know, eating bread and sugar and or sugar water. And one time my mom even tried to make us eat um, clovers, clovers that she had us pick from the yard uh, because we didn't have any food. Um, and, you know, and when we were homeless a few times, we, you know, lived in our van a bunch of times and, um, lived in tents. So it was definitely tough, uh, uh, often. I get that. I definitely get that. And, and let me, let me make sure I'm understanding because I want to be, I want to be, cause, because Mormonism is not my, my forte. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in and out of that world. Um, mm -hmm. So your father was not really on board with the official church line because of this musical troupe thing that he got really upset about. 
So he was kind of doing his own ministry, but not really. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't official. Yeah, it wasn't official. Uh, it was like an unofficial. Did yeah. he? Did he end up ever recruiting actual real followers who would pay attention to what he had to say? Um, no, actually, he never succeeded at that. Okay. Um, and um, you know, and 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 a large part of that was that um, you know our efforts were primarily focused, you know within Mormonism and Mormonism is so hierarchical that basically, you know, it was people were, they were told, you know, it, Mormonism, people are told to not, you know, that not listen to anyone other than the leader. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you, if somebody comes along and says, you know, well, I have divine inspiration about things too, you know, that sets off all sorts of alarm bells uh, in the average Mormon's mind. Um, and so it really, it, you know, made it difficult for him to, to gain, um, you know, to gain helpers or followers or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um and, um, you know, and as a result, you know, and like, so Mormons have a, a monthly thing where they call it fast and testimony meeting, where it's kind of a bit borrowing from the Quakers where they will, it's like open mic uh, day in church. Um, and so people, they, they literally turn the mic over to the congregation and you can walk up and just say whatever you want. Um, <laughs> That's dangerous. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, and definitely there there are a lot of weird things that some people will say um, mm-hmm. <laughs> during those moments. Um, but you know that was something that my dad always loved doing every month. Like that was exactly what he wanted because he couldn't get official sanction for anything that he was doing. So you know, once a month he would go up there and talk for like twenty minutes, <laughs> and every you know all the all the teenage kids were you know. You know, sitting back in their seats, going, "Oh my gosh, when is this going to be over?" Uh, And so, you know, it, it, uh, you know, kind of, it definitely made us have social problems. I'll say. (laughs) Well, that between Uh, that and all the moving and the dysfunction, my uh goodness, it's. I mean, it. it, it, You've really come a long way, you know, uh, from what you described there. Yeah. Well, and so, um, but uh, so ultimately, uh, so I, I, I left um, the the family um, ministry when I was 27 and uh, moved out. Um, and then, um, and w- with one of my brothers, actually, who was doing the Rather site with me wow. uh, after, after we decided, after he was uh, basically fired by CBS, for using fake documents um, in the 2004 election. Um, but after that, um, I, uh, you know, the, the the day that we moved out, uh, or I guess the weekend that we moved out, my, my mom made sure that we knew where the local Mormon congregation was to, in the city that we had moved to. She was like, and here's what time they meet and here's their address. Um, and then so Sunday rolled around and uh, I, looked at my brother and said, you know, I don't, I don't want to go. Do you? Uh, And he said, no. So then we just didn't go. Um, (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) yeah. And so um, it was, you know, it's so, because yeah, we had always just not liked the sort of anti-intellectualism that we experienced routinely and, 
um, like people, you know, would just have these opinions about subjects and had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and they wouldn't want to learn something about, like they didn't even know about Mormonism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the magic uh, rocks. Yeah, like well, yeah, they didn't know, about, certainly didn't know about that. Right. Um, and uh, and 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 you know, and and that's something that I think a lot of um, you know cultic religions do is that they have they keep secrets from their members and they don't let them know about the stranger doctrines because I mean, frankly, right. you know, believing in magical rocks is a strange idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's um, a per- and it's a public perception image problem, et cetera. And yeah, I, exactly. I, I have to note right now before I forget, you know, it's interesting what you mm-hmm. said there about um, about the official um, party line and the, and the prophets in, in Mormonism, because in Scientology, I just thought of a parallel way of thinking, you know, and, mm-hmm. this, and that is if somebody it, within the dogma or within the belief system of Scientology, it is a perfectly reasonable statement to say um, – yeah, I talked to L. Ron Hubbard this morning. Like, there's really no reason you shouldn't be able to do that if you have the spiritual powers that Scientology, you know, pretends to have. I mean, uh, telepathy with a non-corporeal, you know, entity should be no big deal. You're apparently mm-hmm. covered with thousands of them. Why, why is L. Ron Hubbard <laughs> so special, right? But if anybody yeah. walks into a Scientology church and starts talking about how they're talking to L. Ron Hubbard— all the Scientologists kind of can't really move away fast enough. It's sort of the that um, uh, Simpsons, you know, um, uh, meme where he just kind of fades into the grass. Yeah, know? Homer into Homer. the into the hedges. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's like yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. You know, nobody wants to hear it. So it'd be a similar yeah, exactly. sort of thing. So it's interesting how there is a rigidity, there is a a lack of imagination and a lack of ability to think outside the box in these kind of, you know, very it's it's very siloed, very very structured thinking, you know, in these groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and actually, it was learning about Scientology that. <clears throat> um, Learning about Scientology actually helped me realize that Mormonism wasn't true. So, you know, so at that time, my my brother and I, you know, we still believed in Mormon doctrine, even though we decided that we didn't, um, you know, like how the church was operating. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I had seen so South Park has done, of course, I'm sure you've seen it, yes. has, has done and has done a couple of episodes about Scientology, but they've also done one about Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had seen both of those as a Mormon. And, you know, I didn't uh, fu- fully know, you know, I, I hadn't fully processed what I thought about it, um, but it was definitely percolating in the back of my mind, both of those episodes. And then mm. I, I happened to stumble on a website that um, had a critical biography of, of Ron Hubbard um, and then also had a critical biography of Joseph Smith. Mm. Um, and after having read both of those, I came to the conclusion, wow, these guys – Actually, we're very similar. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding. And the lights go ding, off. Ding, yeah. Ding. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. and I don't, you know, I don't believe Scientology. Uh, so why should I believe Mormonism? Uh, 
uh, because they basically, you know, operate, they created their religion for their personal profit. Um, They took advantage of, you know, women who were, had joined their congregations sexually. Um, They, uh, you know, even were reported to have, have molested children, both of them. Um, They were constantly involved in financial fraud, um, and you know, and it just the parallels just kept coming, uh, and I and I thought, wow, okay, you know what? This the South Park episodes were right. <laughs> yeah, South Park was right, <laughs> uh, and, and I was wrong. Uh, and wow. so, but it was such a it was such a relief, though, actually, when when I had that realization because I I had always you know chafed at the culture of Mormonism, the authoritarian culture, the, you know, obedience-focused obsession. Um, And it had always bugged me, but I had, you know, I had somehow, I had been, you know, grown up in that environment, and so I only saw it as uh, the fault of the current leadership and Mm -hmm. not something intrinsic to the religion itself. Um, right. And so Same. once I had that, it was just like, wow, okay, perfect. This yep. is, it never made sense before. And now it all clicks. It's not true. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you don't like it. <laughs> That's right. I, and I had the exact same steps in my journey out too, you know, within a couple months. Because it, it, yeah, I got out of the Sea Org because I hated the Sea Org, not because I hated Scientology as a subject. And I realized mm-hmm. it had gone corrupt and there was something wrong, but I still loved L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology until I got on the internet. And then it was, yeah. you know, then it was all over after three months of going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, So exactly. Well, and, and, and that's, you know, the, I mean, the, there definitely have been lots of negative developments to, of people being able to publish whatever they want on the internet, but um, that, you know, debunking lies of, of, of cultic religions has definitely been one of the great things about um, the evolution, you know, the creation of the internet and uh, promulgation of it. That's right. Um, and, you know, it, it's what, what it's done, though, is it's created this crisis, though, of, and I'm actually writing an essay about this uh, for my uh, site, Flux, that I'm going to be putting out later today, as a matter of fact. Um, but it, it's created this sort of um, epistemic crisis um, in in fundamentalist religion. And, you know, and, and people don't think of Scientology as fundamentalist, but that's what it is. Um, you know, if you believe that the founder was basically inerrant <laughs> and, and could do no wrong, you know, that's fundamentalist. Um, and so... But fundamentalist religion has basically had a it's in a it's in a it's in a crisis of knowledge because all the factual claims that they have made, you know, keep being proven false over and over and over and over and over. And now everybody can see that even their own members can see that. And so, you know, you're just seeing this collapse in membership wherever in the around the world, wherever Internet use um, is common. And because people can just look up, you know, the things that they heard and and turns out they're not true. I mean, like Mormons, just like Scientologists have, you know, have their temple rituals, which they keep secret from members um, and they don't tell them, you know, what goes on in their temples and. Um, and, but now thanks to the internet, you can go watch the Mormon temple ceremonies anytime you want. 
And, you know, what you'll find is that not only are they incredibly boring and stupid, um, (laughs) but they're also strange and they basically require you. Yeah. to Well, they don't do that anymore. uh, Oh, they they don't used to. Yeah. Oh, they, uh, they no, cut they that cut out. That out. Oh, um, okay. But they still, but they still do require members to, you know, dedicate everything they have or ever will have, and all their talents and abilities to the advance to the Mormon Church. Right. Um, and so you know, and um, and then they had you know, and, and the other thing is that the the temple ceremonies themselves, they tell the members, oh, these are ceremonies that were handed down you know, to God from Adam, uh, to Adam in the Bible, and that they were practiced in the temple of Solomon, and they've never changed. Uh, But the thing is, they've changed a lot um, (laughs) over 150 years. And, um, you know, and even the, 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 uh, you know, uh, sacred garments that they, that they wear, the, you know, the magic underwear, you know, even those have changed, uh, supposedly, even though they were, uh, you know, tell people, oh, no, they've never changed. And this is how it always was. But like in the early days of the church, they basically looked like the long john underwear. Um, and and they were full, like they were full body long john underwear. They were pants and long sleeve shirt. They literally covered everything. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, and, and so people can find this stuff, you know, just like they can find all the different what you get for, you know, in, in the different levels of Scientology and um, and so, but, and so basically not only are the secrets unveiled, but also the, the knowledge claims are, are shown, are exposed as well. So, you know, people are not, you know, people are, are understanding, well, you know, this idea that these magical psychic beings are inside of me, uh, and, you know, weighing me down spiritually, you know, that's, that's not true. And there's no evidence for it. Um, and just as there is no evidence that there were, you know, ancient Jews in America running around speaking Hebrew and writing, uh, writing golden uh, books of scripture, um, like right. there's no evidence any of that ever happened. Um, and now Mormons know that. Um, exactly. And now Scientologists members know that. And so but what it's what they've done instead, though, is that. These high demand fundamentalist religions and, you know, evangelical Christianity or, you know, uh, uh, cultic charismatic Catholicism and radical Islam. I mean, they've all been resorting, sort of attenuating to the same um, uh, readout, which is that, well, yeah, there's no evidence for our beliefs. Um, we can't prove that they're true. Not at all. We can't prove that they're true. But the reason we can't prove that they're true is because you can't know the past. Um, the past is unknowable. We literally cannot know what happened in history or in uh, you know, paleontology or cosmology. It's unknowable. You weren't there. How do you know evolution happened? You weren't there. How do you know that the Thetans <laughs> didn't go into the volcano? How do you know that? You weren't there. Uh, and so, therefore, um, nothing is knowable. Right. And so... Since nothing is knowable, you should just believe whatever you want. And, you know, we've got this set of beliefs here that are very handy right here. So you can believe them, too. Uh, <laughs> and so it's basically they've, they've constructed kind of a, a factual relativism 
where, right. or to use right. Kellyanne Conway's phrase, you know, <laughs> uh, alternative facts. Yep. Um, yep. And so, and alternative facts are just as good as regular facts because everything is an opinion. Um, and yes. so you can believe whatever you want. Um, and so and, and that's this, and this is so also dangerous. coming out of the left too, which is really bothering me. You know what I mean? We see this coming out of out of as you just described as a as a as a uh, justification for you know this this these crazy belief ideas. But you also have this being used to that that truth is malleable. Everything's relative. It's sort of this this postmodernist sort of sort of thing. And not to get on that mm-hmm. whole bandwagon, I'm just bringing this one little point up because it's a, something I object mm-hmm. to very strenuously. Is the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth you know yeah well and and in fact that is they act that's what is so weird about this um trend that's emerging is that they're linking up and borrowing and plagiarizing ideas from postmodernist uh deconstructionism right um and so but i mean but in fairness to that tradition it's more about put the postmodernist deconstructionism is about valuation of the past um or like how what how how do you you know what can you learn from it or how should you think about it it's not whether or not something happened um it's how Fair should enough. you interpret it yes um whereas so but and and that's different here in the religious context because um you know they're not making that distinction they're saying that well, everything is relative, um, and so um, so our opinions are true uh, in that framework. Because right. I mean, and it, and it has a, it has a certain you know logic to it, right? Because if anything can be true, then their beliefs could be true too, right? Well, yeah, um, exactly, and and we'll have an infinite series of dimensions where all possible worlds exist, and. You know, mm-hmm. and these sort of theoretical ideas, but it 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 tends to not be very useful in the day to day real world. You know. Oh, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> no, and it's. I mean, it, you you could. So in in philosophy, there's this idea, uh, and and it's one of the dumbest arguments in in for the existence of God that I know of. It's called the ontological argument, which says that if you can imagine a being that is has all positive attributes. Um, so all powerful, all all present, um, you know, uh, non uh, non corporeal and corporeal, timeless um, existence would have to be a part of that being uh, because that's a positive um, attribute. Uh, so therefore, it must exist. But it's a ridiculous argument, of course, because existence is not a positive attribute at all it's just it's just something that is exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. literally existence <laughs> it has no it's value not a good thing or a bad thing that's right um that's right and you know and and of course by that standard you know um the flying spaghetti monster is real and or the or the blue uh, smurfs because, <laughs> or the what or the blue smurfs yeah that's right you know yeah. and so uh, um and so uh, but that's basically what they've done is it's this ontological um, phenomenology. And so it's it's really it's really problematic, though, because, yeah, because it, it makes it hard for everybody to have a shared reality 
uh, because you know it's we're still we still have a shared reality. It's still there. We're still all with each other, uh, whether we want to be that way or not, um, and or and whether we acknowledge that or not, it's still there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because reality is there is is the stuff that remains when you close your eyes and open them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, when you sort of take all the faith away and what you're left with, mm-hmm. you know, that's your that's reality. Yeah. Cuz cuz for me faith are those things that you don't have to think about anymore. I have a fairly negative view of of religious faith in that regard and and, and how I see mm-hmm. it practiced. You know, I understand that it's very empowering for some people, very comforting in other situations. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take that away from people, but, um, but, but, it, but willing ignorance, you know, is, is something I will fight back and push back against, you know, cause I don't think that's right. And the, yeah, and, and the internet really is giving us a sort of, is sort of just the existence of it, the existence of this knowledge base, the readily available, knowledge base we have is is leaps and bounds above you know you used to have to go to the you used to physically have to go to the library or physically go to the bookstore and and it was a bother to find mm-hmm. things out now it's three seconds on your phone and you can know mm-hmm. things that w- that would have taken you days to figure out 30 40 years ago so it's, yeah. so it's quite revolutionary but it's also you know riling up a lot of people who relied on ignorance as their model mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and the other thing that I guess a a more negative aspect of that sort of information democratization or accessibility of information is that, you know, it does, it has enabled us to know objective reality better to some degree, but it also has allowed us to think that we know things when we don't know them. So, you know, and so like, I think the best example of that is, you know, anti vaccine um, conspiracy theories that, you know, they actually are, if you, if you're, uh, there was some uh, researchers that went and looked at, you know, pro-vaccine statements on the internet and anti-vaccine statements on the internet. And the anti-vaccine stuff is actually a lot more common on the internet, um, and which is really unfortunate. Um, and, um, and so basically somebody who will go on to their phone, you know, and hop on, you know, Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo will, you know, if, if, if they don't know how to research, um, then they can come across with, uh, a, you know, a simulacrum of, of fake knowledge. Yes. Um, and, and so in, in, in some ways that's, you know, it, it's, it's like the internet coming full circle in that it enabled the debunking of, you know, more, more ancient fables, uh, but it's allowing the construction of present day fables That's right. uh, much more easily. So, you know, like, and, and, and then you got, you know, people out there like Joe Rogan and, you know, whoever who, I mean, Joe Rogan doesn't know anything about anything other than, you know, comedy show, you know, stand up comedy and, and MMA. That's right. Like, and, you know, he doesn't know anything else. Like, so, but we've, but the internet has created this idea that people, you know, this, this sort of, uh, what I take culture that, you know, you have to have, if you, if you have an audience, you have to offer a take on everything, uh, even if you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, and so, and then, and then of course your audience, um, unfortunately too often, especially, uh, you know, is just enraptured with the person and, 
that's it's kind of like their own you know pseudo religion in a sense the religion of joe rogan or the religion of uh uh, Jordan Peterson or whoever, right. you know, and um, and so the people who would sit there and watch hours and hours of these people, uh, and I, I mean I don't know how you can stand listening to five minutes of Jordan Peterson, but uh, <laughs> some people listen to that guy for hours. But you know, and um, you know, and, and they and they think that he knows everything, um, and so and then when they go off and start talking about things that they don't know anything about and that are flagrantly wrong, you know, that's, that's very uh, detrimental to society. And, um, it's true. It's tough. It's tough to consider how that can, that genie can be put back into the bottle. I don't know that it can be, but I do know that, you know, we definitely need a lot more critical thinking, uh, taught in our educational, you know, in our school systems, and I, I feel like that philosophy 101 should be a mandatory requirement for graduation uh, in all, in not just bachelor's degree, but associate's degree, uh, because it, you know we're we're in this moment here where, you know, the 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 entirety of human knowledge is available to us, but we have to know what we don't know That's and right. we have to know how to, how to uh, process it. Um, and we don't have that ability and, you know, we can't rely on, you know, I mean, Google and, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, they don't, they're dumber, a lot dumber than humans are. Uh, and so they can't tell you if, you know, somebody's video about vaccines is credible or not. They have no way of knowing that. They just say, oh, you want a vaccine video? Well, here you go. You know, here's a vaccine video. And doesn't matter what's in it. Exactly. <laughs> they don't know what's in it. <laughs> exactly. People, yeah, it's it's really amazing when you start diving into, um, you know, neuroscience and biology and psychology and sociology and these things that I've, that I've spent years, you know, diving in and out of. And mm -hmm. and seeing how people react to things, you know, understanding or looking at the world from a propagandist point of view, I suppose, is kind of mm -hmm. is you know how do you manipulate people? What do people respond to? What do people think is important mm -hmm. and what's not? And how do people perceive? Yeah. Because we're horrible with numbers, for example, we're absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they're 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 great with numbers and they're not. And statistics and probabilities and things like that, they routinely are missing on this. This is a weak mm -hmm. point with us in terms of research. And then methods of research. People say, go do your research, but people don't know how. And you make the yeah. excellent point. That, well, and a you know, lot of people think, you know, research is watching a YouTube video. Right. <laughs> for, exactly. for five minutes. <laughs> exactly. And you go that, do a master's program, you're going to find out, no, that's not research, buddy. <laughs> that's not how it works. You know, yeah. not even remotely. Yeah, so, yeah, and so, you know, what we need is, um, you know, w in an information age, knowing how to process information becomes the most important skill. Exactly. Uh, because it's That's the right. foundation of all other knowledge. That's right. Because otherwise, if you, like, for example, that, you know, here's, here's a, here's a, a, I think an important point on that line is, if you don't understand your position, your role in things, um, you know, social media fooled so many of us for so long because we didn't really understand what it meant when we were told you're the product. 
You're getting the service for free, but guess what? You're the product, right? They're selling your information. They're selling you, to, you know, and you did, and we all like didn't, didn't really get that. And now mm. we're here, we are 15, you know, 20 years later going, oh gosh, we really should have gotten that. <laughs> and we didn't, you know, and now look at where we are. And, and I wanted to sort of segue this over in this direction. This was a, um, on the point of religion and and politics, because these things have really been coming together over the last many decades. I mean, they made a concerted effort in the 80s to join conservatism and politics, and it's been kind of joined at the hip ever since. And you said that um, almost all right-wing support in the U.S. comes from a view that Christians are under attack by secular liberals. And you mm -hmm. said this point is so important and so little understood and I think you're mm -hmm. right. I think there is a bunker mentality with a lot of fundamentalist or evangelical groups and, and, this, and this incredible push that we see mm -hmm. in politics and with the rise of somebody like a Trump, I think is reflective mm -hmm. of some of what you're talking about here. But I wanted to ask you, do you think this is some of this is in response to this rise of information and this feeling of them being attacked and this sort of bunker mentality? Do you think that might be... A fairly contributive factor to the rise of somebody like a Trump. Oh, it it absolutely is, and in fact, it's his rise is a natural and inevitable uh, byproduct of you know the idea that of factual relativism, uh, because you know here's a he's he fits perfectly in that environment because he's a compulsive liar, uh, and so <laughs> yes. you know he says whatever works for him in that moment. And believe and be truly believes it. I think he does believe the things he says. Uh, and so, you know, and 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 uh, to to go, you know, go back to the '90s show Seinfeld. George Costanza's character, you know, would always say, "It's not a lie if you believe it." Um, <laughs> did, oh, did he say that? <laughs> he did say that. That was one of his catchphrases. Wow. And, um, you know, and and so. Um, yeah, so so you you've got this environment where people are constantly, you know, being aware of the fact that their you know uh, literalist interpretations of, of of ancient texts are not true. Um, their schools tell them that. Their colleges tell them that. Their TV tells them that. I mean. They're constantly being told your beliefs are false, <laughs> and that's because they are false. Um, but they're constantly, you know, being aggrieved by that, uh, by being, you know, having that. So, I mean, like, you know, if they've got a kid, their kids going to school and learning about, you know, abiogenesis and, uh, you know, uh, spe you know, speciation and things like that and the fossil record. And, you know, it's just, and so a lot of, of these fundamentalist type, uh, you know, Christians are, they're just opting out entirely as much as they can. And so they'll take their children out of public school and make and homeschool them or put them in a Christian school or um, and where they, you know, are not exposing them to the, what everybody else thinks. Uh, and, you know, definitely not making them aware that LGBT people exist uh, or, or if they do exist, they're evil uh, and have, you know, chosen to be what they are. That's um, right. And they must and, be destroyed. Huh? And they must be, they are evil and they must be destroyed. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but, 
it's it's become harder and harder for the their little bubbles that they've created they're becoming increasingly permeable especially as they've tried to expand them into so you know first they created their own alternative media ecosystem of you know uh, of religious talk shows and uh, you know radio shows and tv channels and out, you know, websites and whatnot. But then they started saying, well, you know what, I'm going to uh, take my prophetic gifts and go into political punditry as well. So I'm going to predict, I'm going to have revelations that Donald Trump's, he's going to win in 2020, uh, because I saw a vision that he would win. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, well, that didn't really happen. And, <laughs> um, and so it's created this you know, they, they all truly believed with their deepest emotions that he was going to win and that they had, you know, uh, divine premonitions of this and assurances. Um, and so it's extremely upsetting uh, and enraging and threatening to their belief system. And rather than want to, you know, expand to a more healthy uh, non-fundamentalist attitude about religion or just not have it, um, they've decided to attack the idea of of knowledge itself and to attack anything that goes counter to their belief. So, you know, they first, so, you know, the right-wing Christians first started with attacks on, you know, uh, academia. And so like William F. Buckley Jr., who was the most famous early conservative. His first book was called God and Man at Yale, in which he railed against, he basically tattletailed on professors who he thought were not faithful enough um, to, to <laughs> traditionalist interpretations. Um, and it was just pages and pages of whining about them. And, um, and, and they've been doing that. And that book came out in 1951. So it's yeah. 70 years ago. Um, and, yes. you know, they've been doing that ever since, uh, going after professors. But then they started going after, you know, uh, government officials after that. You know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That's a scary phrase, according to Ronald Reagan. Um, and, you know, it, uh, and attacking social workers and uh, scientists next, you know, because of course they're promulgators of the evil lies of Charles Darwin, um, and uh, among other things. And you know, they tell people that uh, you know climate change is real, and and that we need to do less polluting, and you know, we can't have that. So we, they're you know they're in on the plot now, and and then uh, during the Trump administration, I you know you I never thought that you would see them turn and attack law enforcement, but that's what they did because you know this guy's a you know complete crook and uh, congenital criminal, and so of course. Uh, the FBI is now an evil organization in, uh, <laughs> in their mind. And everybody, anybody who goes against their um, sort of will to power is therefore morally, uh, you know, it wrong and, and evil. And so that's what I meant when I said that this idea is so central to right wing thought. Right. And that being the case, and I, and I, and I believe you're right. I'm wondering, and it's very hard for me to figure out how to actually suss this out. So I, you know, so I talk to people who are more expert about it, such as yourself. Are we seeing the, you know, this this bunker mentality, this fighting, this like fight or flight thing that the, that these that these groups seem to be in? 
creates, of course, more tribalism, more extremism, more radicalization, because when people feel threatened, they're not thinking with the frontal lobes, they're thinking with other parts of the brain, right? And so they're not, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of rationality going on. And as you said, facts don't matter, evidence doesn't matter, it's the belief, and, it's, and it, I must believe this is true. This, this kind of thinking is where the studies on cognitive dissonance were done, you know, on these doomsday cults where it didn't happen. And, you know, the date came and went and people still believed. Just like now, Trump didn't lose. He won. That's how it is. I know this is true. It can't be any other way. And you can show facts and reason all day long and it doesn't go anywhere. So what, yeah. I'm, what I'm wondering is, are these death throes that we're seeing, are things moving in this direction where these groups are truly becoming smaller and we're seeing them going in an extinction direction? Or is this a rallying cry to try to rally all the troops and we're actually seeing a, a resurgence in this? Uh, which way do you think it's going? Um, well, I think... You're right to say that it's a pivot point, mm -hmm. um, and right now I don't I don't think that we know um, okay. Okay. where how it, how it will go. But you know I I would say that you know when you if you look at um, um, I mean you know Trump never had over fifty percent approval rating mm -hmm. in in public opinion polls, and you know he lost the popular vote by more than he did last time in 2016. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I would say that it's, um, there are definitely positive trends that are, are at work here as well. So, you know, you look at, um, you know, the, the Republicans have lost a large percentage of people who formerly did vote loyally for them. Um, and that's and that's a good thing. So, like Republican partisan identification is has declined in you know is at record lows, depending on the poll you look at. Mm. Um, so that's a positive thing. But at the same time, you know, there uh, the American system is so um, generally unresponsive to public sentiment that there are lots, there are millions of people out there who are just totally disengaged um, from the news and totally disengaged from politics and don't understand it, it, its importance or, you know, it, and they, maybe they don't care about national stuff, but, you know, they don't care about their local stuff either. They just don't care about anything. Um, you know, they want to watch TV and, you know, play video games and go on vacation and, you know, that's all they care about. Right. Um, and, you know, it, that's, it's not a, a healthy dynamic for sure. And it makes it easier for small, you know, minority, dedicated minorities to have outsized power um, because the rest of the public who doesn't agree with them, because if they did agree, they would be joining them up, um, that they, they can have that outsized power. So, uh, for instance, as the in the past several decades, um, white evangelicals as a demographic share of all adults have been declining significantly. Like they used to be about 33 or so percent of America. Now they're only about 20 percent of America, but they have remained about 30 percent of the electorate. Uh, because their pastors are just whipping them up with frenzy into increasing their voter turnouts over and over and, and giving this apocalyptic rhetoric to them and lying to them. I mean, you know, like if you look at um, 
you know, the religious opinions of, of many of the most black Americans, they tend to have, you know, kind of fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible. Uh, but they have no problem being Democrats um, or, you know, moderates or whatever, um, or just say non-conservative. Um, and because there isn't any actual threat to them, like the average uh, person who's secular doesn't really care if you don't agree with them. Uh, like there aren't, you know, active anti Christian ministries out there. Uh, <laughs> right. Hey, there's a satanic temple now. Come on, Lucian's doing some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, he's actually well, he's, not anti-Christian yeah, but... either. He's just this. He's just trying to get some equal rights going. You know. Yeah. Well, and so you know, and so basically, you know, they exist just fine outside of that fundamentalist white Christian uh, world, but you know, the average white Christian fundamentalist is so unfamiliar. Uh, because religion is unfortunately very segregated to a large degree. Um, they're so utterly unfamiliar with, you know, black faith traditions that they don't see that it's just fine for them and they don't feel really threatened at all um, by being outside that right wing disinformation, you know, religion control bubble. Yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time, you know, there's, there has been a general and long-standing decline of, of fundamentalist and general religiosity among white Americans and Asian Americans over the years. Um, so, you know, it's like about, uh, I think, 25% or 20% of people who are uh, white or Asian say they have no affiliation. Um, mm-hmm. And that's even higher among younger ones. And so, you know, there. That's also what makes the you know remaining fundamentalist power uh, brokers feel even more threatened because they see their congregations shrinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mormonism and you know the world that I know, you know, they're constantly obsessing over. Oh, we got to do something about the young people. The young people are leaving. The young people are leaving, right. um, and they keep you know, shuffling all these programs and trying to rejigger stuff. But it isn't the programs that they're leaving for. It's the doctrines that they're leaving for. Right. Um, and and so, um, so that's, you know, anyway, but that decline has been a, a positive development. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, we're also seeing an explosive growth of fundamentalist Protestantism among Hispanics. Um, and that is kind of a uh, under the radar story in religion and politics, but it's it's a really important, significant trend that's happening. Um, oh, and I was not aware of that. that. Yeah, and that Hispanic evangelical culture is basically just a, a you know outgrowth of the white fundamentalist evangelical subculture. So, just as you know, uh, illiterate and just as anti-intellectual, unfortunately. Um, and that's a huge reason why Trump improved his vote share among Hispanics um, in oh. 2020 versus 2016. Okay. But most of his voter base are white, evangelical or white, non-educated. Is that – do I have that right or is that um, – Well, actually, the, um, it's – so – Non-college yeah, white? Yeah, that's – well, uh, yeah, non – the people who are non-college white are more like – 
likely to support Trump. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of Trump voters have college degrees um, okay. as well. Yeah. And so but and that's where the religion aspect comes in to play for them, because if right. you are a college educated person and you're not engaged in some sort of fundamentalist, uh, you know, you're not engaging in in regular religious services and you're white, you know, you're very likely to not be a Republican overwhelmingly. Interesting. Um, and so, uh, and so, and, 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 you know, and the, the, and that is why, you know, in my commentary and interviews over the years, I've been trying to get political observers to understand that, you know, the role of religion in American politics is a lot greater than what you think. And that many times things that you think are racially motivated or some other motivation are actually go back are traceable to religion. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and especially in the sense that uh, American conservative culture is really kind of the uh, it's like a basically the South lost the Civil War. But then they launched their cultural offensive and took over <laughs> large por a lot of people in the north um, from a cultural standpoint. And so, like, if you look at almost all the early leaders uh, and founders of American conservatism are southern, uh, you know, religious fundamentalists. And even though they don't go out there, they may not go out there and wear it on their sleeves or talk about it. They have these beliefs. So, you know, like Kellyanne Conway, she's a radical um, Catholic fundamentalist. And Laura Ingram, the Fox News host, is a radical Catholic fundamentalist. Um, but they don't, you know, they don't say these, go out there and wear it on their sleeves. Bill Barr, the former attorney general, same thing. Yep. Um, you know, and Mike Pence, you know, he, you know, doesn't believe in evolution. And, right. Uh, and, well, the influence you know, we see from groups like The Family, Alex Gibney's documentary from Jeff Charlotte's book, that was pretty powerful mm -hmm. and it made a compelling case for the religious influence in D.C. that's been there for, for quite some time. I mean, going back to the 50s with the National Prayer Breakfast, One Nation Under God on the Bills, all that sort of anti-communist mm -hmm. push. And and it's just kind of been growing and building since. I mean, this, this, this idea of a separation of church and state is almost a joke as far as i'm concerned and the only people pushing back against it are the are the atheist groups yeah and it's it's a really unfortunate because you know the liberal protestants or moderate, moderate religionists they would be just as negatively impacted right <laughs> if it, if these radical right you know christians got what they wanted right. um and they don't, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to get some of them to understand that, that, you know, and and I guess it's, you know, they may feel a certain loyalty or I don't know, they don't want to betray their fellow co-religionists. So they'll focus more on environmentalism or, you know, racial justice, not to say those things are not important, but, you know, it's your actual wheelhouse. Right. <laughs> so exactly. you should probably work on that a little bit more. Yeah, um, maybe just given bit. who you are. Exactly. Just given who you are. <laughs> exactly. You know, if you if you don't want to focus on that, then maybe, you know, just go work on, on those issues that you're more passionate about. But don't do it from your church. Um, yeah, you would think. Well, it's... Um it's the and and it seems again to even on what you just said there it seems to come down again to um you know toward a tendency towards tribalism towards 
you know, well, it's my group. I can't be critical. I can't, you know, I don't want to push back too hard because I might get ostracized mm-hmm. or there might be consequences, social consequences, financial, you know, in these days mm-hmm. of cancel culture, which occurs on all ends of everything because it's just a stupid phrase for what we, for in-group, out-group nonsense. That's what we yeah. do. It's it's what we've been doing since time, you know, from the very beginning of time. So we, yeah. you know, but, but I'm concerned about our future um, because of the tribal divisions that seem to be escalating. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. I've, I've definitely gone on many roles about the media and the media's role in this. And I'm curious from your perspective, because you've been doing this for 20 years. And in fact, you started by, you know, criticizing Dan Rather. Who I kind of find is a has a has a has a very pleasant Twitter account. I, I like Dan Rather, but <laughs> but I could see how he could be a target, right? So, what's mm. your how do you see the role of media in feeding this, uh, enabling it, contributing, causing it? I don't know. There's various you know opinions out there about this. Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely. Yeah, it's both a cause and an effect, I would say. So, you know, I think one of the worst aspects in which it encourages tribalism is the television debate format. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, commercial television, you know, just by virtue of having to make commercials on their air, um, they have to have these short segments. They can't be in-depth. And, you know, and debates if they're going to be useful, have to be in-depth because you have to be able to explore each side's thinking and and force them to respond to to the other's contentions. And, you know, if your segments are structured, you know, a five-minute block, if you're lucky, two minutes, uh, you know, like, you're not going to have a real conversation. Um, And so when, and so then they, they compound that situation by having, you know, booking commentators who don't know anything about what they're talking about. And so they just revert to tribalist uh, positions. And, yeah. and, you know, that's, it's true on more on the conservative side, but I won't say it's only on that side. Um, and so it, it just, it is an encouraging learning. It is an encouraging thinking outside your own box and, learning about other people's perspectives. Um, so, you know, I, but the reason why they keep doing it is because it's a lot cheaper uh, to have these debate formats than to have in-depth news reports and, um, you know, or, or just simply, a, um, you know, and they figure people are bored if an anchor is just telling you stuff that happened um, that, well, you don't want to hear that. I want to see people yell and scream at each other uh, because it's more entertaining than a guy or a woman telling me, well, this thing happened today. Right. Um, you know, the rise and of so, infotainment but, rather than information. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so the commercial, you know, the for-profit media as structured has definitely been a negative um, uh, in terms of that. And, you know, the uh, I, I think the other thing is also that, you know, you have um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I wish they would not emphasize the debate format uh, so much. Um, I wish they would, you know, that would be a huge thing if they would do that. And also stop booking people who are just going to go on there and lie. And, you know, and the other thing is, if you're going to, if you are going to go and, 
you know, have these people on your show and you and you feel the need to, you know, ask them, well, you know, was Joe Biden legitimately elected? Is he the I mean, like that's been a, become a thing also to some degree um, and to try to force, uh, you know, Trumpy Republicans to answer that question. But then uh, very often the interviewers themselves don't know the, you know, ins and outs of the, all the various conspiracy theories of, of the Trump uh, voting, you know, allegations. Um, and so if you don't know what they're talking about, you have to be able to debunk them on it. You know, so like they'll say, oh, well, you know, well, this thing happened here in Arizona. And, you know, very often they ain't going to be like, what the hell? I've never heard about that. Uh, and so instead of and so they don't actually address the disinformation. They actually are just letting it sit out there and um, contributing so, and enabling it in a way and, con- and spreading it. Yeah. That's right. And so I would say if you're not. If you're not familiar enough with to be able to strongly debunk false statements, then you shouldn't have them on your air at all. Exactly. Uh, and just sim- simply, you know, badgering somebody. Oh, did did is is Biden the real president? Is Biden the real president? Like, that's crap too. Like that doesn't. It's not persuading these holdouts. Um, it's just making them feel more loyal, in fact, to the disinformation because they see somebody being, you know, bullied uh, for having opinions, having their opinions. Right. Um, that's right. And, so, and, and that's and that's just how we work. We're not we're, you don't have to yeah. think about it. It's just going to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, I, you know, I wish they would stop, you know, they, I wish they would change their bookings and change that, uh, you know, the, how, how they do debates and, you know, go more for long form interviews. If you want to have a conversation with people, do it as a, as a single interview and get their perspective in depth. Um, and, you know, but, at, and then I would say also there's, you know, been a real, um, and it's something a lot of people don't know about is just the explosion of this, you know, this gigantic, alternative media universe mm-hmm. um, of disinformation that exists. I mean, there's this, you know, this uh, nonprofit group called the American Family Association that, you know, is pushing a very, very fundamentalist, anti-gay, uh, uh, it, you know, message. And they own, you know, at like 200 radio stations across America. There's another radio company called Salem Media, and they own all most major conservative websites. Like they own Red State, they own Town Hall, they own um, Hot Air, they own you know a, a, a bunch of these other sites. And the people who own it are you know biblical literalists um, and inerrantists, and um, and of course they don't allow anybody on their sites to have a dissenting opinion, you know, let, in, let, certainly not, you know, an atheist perspective, but they wouldn't even allow a liberal Christian, uh, on their site. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you think that, you know, the Bible says it's okay to be, you know, gay, well, you're not allowed on there, um, on their platforms and, and they control so much of, of what, Republicans, just regular Republicans, see, um, and Fox News is the same way. Um, in that, you know, they're. I mean, Sean Hannity is very religiously deranged as well, and uh, you know, Ainsley Earhart, the uh, Fox and Friends co-host, um, she has literally has her own show on their uh, 
internet streaming show called Ainsley's Bible Study. Uh, and she delivers the morning news every day for them. Um, and so, like, these perspectives are so pervasive and powerful within the Republican culture. And they shape um, Republican opinion so negatively. Um, and most people are not even aware that the, this stuff exists. Um, you know, and like Trinity Broadcast Network, which is this televangelist channel, and, you know, Pat Robertson has his thing. I mean, these people, they are beaming their lies and delusions directly into the minds of people, you know, millions of people every day. They it's, get this crap. Yeah, it is really so, something. Yeah, and so, but but at the same time, you know, so I think the ultimately, you know, the, the right-wing fundamentalist perspective has been so coddled, actually, in the media. Like, they never actually ask people, okay, well, so tell me why we shouldn't have, you know, gay marriage. Isn't it really just because your, your religion thinks that? Isn't that really what your opinion is? Right. Um, you know, like they don't ask them to reveal their true motivations. You know, you, right. you, you want to cut this poverty, anti-poverty program because you think that he that does not work should not eat. That's a Bible verse. Um, you know, isn't that really what you think? Um, and, you know, and, and like force people to reveal their true motivations. They never do. And they never ask them, you know, like, a lot of these right-wing pundits have second careers making fundamentalist uh, religious books. Uh, so like mm -hmm. David Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh's brother, he's written like 10 Bible books, and they're all garbage. He's a nice guy, actually, uh, a lot better than his brother was. But, um, you know, his books are terrible, and they're never, you know, there's this unfortunate, uh, I don't know, you know, deference that is given to to these opinions which are just false opinions like they're not and it's okay to say that they're not true um it's okay to make them you know try to defend them to defend themselves because what's happened is because they're never made to defend their or challenged in any real way um on their on their uh, literalist beliefs um, these beliefs are just sort of festering in the corner, um, and they're rotting away and stinking up the rest of the world <laughs> as they decay. Um, and well, instead, what we ought to do is, you know, sweep them into the into a dustpan and throw them out, um, so that they don't keep polluting our our body politic. Well, that would be it. Would be interesting to do that. I'm I'm curious how. You see us doing that, actually, because I'm definitely down with a lot of the things you're talking about. I think that um, the I, I think, again, your, your accent on the entertainment value, you know, or the conflict value of a story over its objective truth value is is a problem. And I and I ranted the other week about for profit media, I think, being you know, the fundamental reason as to how this whole thing has been corrupted at a very, very, very fundamental level is even below religious influences is the money mm -hmm. influence, right? Um, yeah. And then, well, and and that's then actually the formatting, why I started, you know. Sorry, and that's actually why I started my website, Flux, and is as a nonprofit because we're trying to counter some of those things in terms right. of. Um, the incentives that exist because, yeah, everything in a for-profit media environment 
you know, that's print based, every, you know, everything is about clickbait. Uh, exactly. And, and exactly. about having a take on something, whether it's true or not. And, you know, that's like, right. and it exists, you know, on, on the left side of the aisle as well, like with those, um, you know, Catholic school boys who were accused of harassing that uh, Native American activist at oh, the Capitol. Right. Yeah. Uh, the That's Covington right. school, you know, that turned out he was the one who started harassing them. Right. Uh, and, 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 and of course the reality is even if they were guilty as originally charged, like, does it really fucking matter? Right. Uh, if some people had a confrontation on the street, who the hell cares? Like, that's exactly. not your business. Um, it doesn't matter. Like somebody was an asshole that, yeah, you know, where have, where have you been? <laughs> We're surrounded by assholes. <laughs> well, exactly. It seems that many, many, many stories I see on my newsfeed, and I've just got a regular old newsfeed, Google News, you know, fed by, mm -hmm. I, I try to, to look at and click on a number of different things. So the algorithm will keep feeding me a variety of things and not echo chamber me. But that's, a, that's really an impossibility with any algorithm these days. Well, what I'm wondering is, how do you think we might be able to either temper this, or is there anything that we can do to, you know, that we can do? <laughs> you know, we're just regular voting Americans. We're not politicians. We're not necessarily civic leaders. We're people who have opinions that have put ourselves in a public forum, and some people like what we say. What can we do <laughs> to lower the temperature maybe of some of the of some of the tribalism we see being thrown around because it feels like there's so much money being made and so much <clears throat> influence being garnered by keeping the temperature high that I don't know how we reverse course on this. Do you have any ideas on that? Um well I think you know talking about it regularly is is very important. Like mm -hmm. that is the most significant way of getting people you know to realize that, that that it's happening that the incentives are for conflict um and um and you know and and to promote the idea of you know that uncertainty is okay that moral um pragmatism isn't a vice it's a good thing you know and understanding that there are different perspectives of you know views of of things is a positive thing um, because nobody has the absolute truth, um, and to and to get people to understand that you know there, there's this uh, I don't even remember where I heard this, but it's some folklore saying about there was a there was a story about uh, an owl. Have you did you ever hear that one? That the wise old owl, the more he learned, the less he spoke. Uh, sorry, the 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 less he spoke, the more he knew. The more uh, the more he knew, the less he spoke. Right, um, and, and so you know, of course. But what that means, though, is that you know we have to try to move our media environment and encourage people who produce media to move to a uh, learner uh, expert type um, dialogue rather than a pugilistic. Um, you know, um, system. And so I think that that's a better way and to try to encourage people to see, to, you know, the audience, to get audiences to want something differently or to want, you know, to want what's good for you rather than what entertains you. Um, and, exactly. and, and honestly, 
this is a struggle. It's it's no different than trying to promote proper nutrition um, because your natural impulse is, you know, I want to eat stuff that tastes great. I want to eat, you know, whatever. I want to eat candy if you're, you know, or I want to eat steak every day or whatever. And, and so that's a continual struggle uh, of our food diets to keep them balanced, to keep them you know, nutritious and moderate. Um, the government itself has a responsibility and has now realizes it as a responsibility to encourage people to have healthy food diets. Uh, and, you know, most, I would say most, you know, news shows that are talk about diets to the extent that they do, you know, feel, realize they have an obligation to do that as well. And so I would say that, you know, we need that spreading awareness of healthy inform and balanced information diets. That's um, something that has to be regularly presented to people and, and to keep them on their toes in that regard, because, you know, and, and that's true, you know, of, of all political perspectives. Uh, so like, for instance, um, before the 2020 election, you know, I, I, I regularly read, you know, various right wing media outlets, uh, both to keep tabs on what they're doing. And, you know, and it, it, with the idea that sometimes they may be correct about stuff. And one thing that they were talking about in the lead up to, to the uh, in last November was that um, that in Florida, the uh, the early vote totals were not coming in the way for, that Biden needed them to come in and that he was going to lose Florida. They were saying this like two months uh, before the election. Um, and as it happened, people who were on the ground, Democratic activists were also saying this, but nobody listened to them. And nobody listened to the red was reading the Breitbart article saying, ha ha, you know, you guys are Democrats are going to lose Florida. Look at this. Ha ha ha. We're going to win it. They were right that time. And, you know, if you and I actually went and cross checked their numbers um, and I, I knew that they were right. Um, and a lot of it was related to the fact that um, the, um, you know, early voting or mail voting, while it's easier for some people, is harder for some people. Uh, mm. Like if you don't know how to read English well or you don't have a stable address or, you know, you work all the time or you have a strange schedule or lots of kids or, you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of reasons that a mail ballot might be more difficult for you. Hmm. And so as it happened, uh, people in, <clears throat> you know, and, and in a given election, under normal circumstances, mail ballots, uh, about 20% of them are never returned at all. Uh, and so in a, a number of states, you know, when people were being sent unsolicited uh, ballots, it was like 30% or higher even of non-return ballots. And it was independents and Democrats who were not actually returning them. Um, and so like I looked all this up and constructed my own data model, but I was even I, so I knew it was right, but I was too afraid to release it uh, before the election and say that Biden was going to lose Florida. But I was right. Uh, and I should have released it, um, even though I wasn't, you know, 100 um, percent. And I didn't release it ultimately because I you know, wanted to refine my my data model. Um, and I um, but I should have, you know, pushed through and, and actually refined it more uh, and let people know that what was going to happen. But 
and I knew that, it, but I got tipped off to that because my information diet, you know, is a balanced one. Right. And, and so there are, you know, the, getting people to understand you know, that is so important and getting, you know, the creators who listen to your show to understand that they should include this message in their own shows. Like that's important too. Um, and, you know, spreading the idea of critical thinking and, you know, understanding how to identify logical fallacies and know what they are. I mean, you know, circular reasoning is unfortunately very common. Um, and, you know, among many other uh, logical fallacies, you know, the ad hominem and, um, you know, the idea that just because and, and um, it's uh, the, this idea, the argument from ignorance, um, just and that takes various forms, but one is that just because I've never heard of something, mean if I've never heard of something, it's not true. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> it can't be true if I haven't heard of it. Um, right. Well, I've never heard. I've never heard of that logical fallacy before, so that can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, right. So you know, and and getting spreading that awareness, I think, is so is so important. Um, so that's what I would say. That's a long-winded answer to your question. No, so I was I, I, I was curious what your views on it were. I, I, I'm I'm honestly curious, and I because I you know because you live in a slightly different world than I do in terms of being more involved in the political side of things. I comment on stuff all the time, but I see things through a through a, a high control group sort of coercive control lens. That's how I'm always thinking and looking at things. And I look at these news platforms as as propaganda platforms, not news platforms. I think that's what they've become. And I think that's a more accurate way of describing what they do now. Oh, but, well, to yeah. be honest, that's what they were constructed to be. Exactly. Fox News yes. was created by Roger Ailes, who, while running Fox News was also engaging in Republican campaign advice. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, right. like it was literally, and he literally created it to be a, you know, uh, counterweight to what he saw as, you know, liberal bias in the rest of the media. Right. And so, and that's how the, and that's how the, all of the other ones are. So like, you know, if you open up the New York times, you know, you see that they have several uh, conservative columnists on their pages uh, and they have, you know, op-eds, excuse me, op-eds from, you know, Republican leaders and about things here and there. And whereas if you go and look at, you know, conservative websites, they don't have any liberal columnist. You know, you go to a Christian website, they don't have an atheist columnist or a Jewish columnist or a right. Muslim columnist. They don't give a shit what Muslims have to say about anything. Uh, and, you know, and so, um, so that's, you know that they they are designed to push a message, and they were from the very beginning. Um, and in many cases, they were directly operated by campaign activists and and um, staffers themselves. I mean, National Review was created with the original intent of deposing Dwight Eisenhower, uh, who was the Republican president. They all hated him, uh, and they thought he was a liberal, uh, and they need they wanted to get rid of him, even though he was the last. You know. American politician who everybody fucking liked. Um, <laughs> they hated him. <laughs> that shows you how out of touch they were. Um, That's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, 
Well, like I said, propaganda machines, you know, and I and I have a thing about propaganda. I, I have a thing about mental, you know, manipulation on a mass scale. I think it's a I think it's a weapon of uh, of incredible uh, potential destruction. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of potential there. There's also a potential for doing a lot of good. So it's it's definitely one of the one of the biggest two edged swords that sort of, you know, hangs over our head to mix my metaphors here. Um, so I'm wondering though, from the perspective that you see things, right? How much influence, I mean, you know, I, I, I have different views about this. I see it as, you know, sometimes I think they're buddy, buddy. Other times I think they're sort of contentious. And I'm talking about the relationship between say the GOP as a body, as an actual organization and Mm -hmm. But let's say Fox News, which is you know definitely the organ of of the biggest bullhorn for for their for their positioning. Do these how buddy buddy are these guys? Do you know how these relationships work? Is it is it random story by story, or is there an agenda? You know. Um, well, it's it's very much like the way that. Um, the Republican Republicans work in Congress. So um, in the in the Congress, there are different factions. Um, and so, you know, you've got your, you know, radical fundamentalists who in the House, they've got this group called the Freedom Caucus, uh, yeah. very or- orwellingly named <laughs> freedom for everybody, for them and for no one else, uh, <laughs> right. basically. Um, and uh you know, and so, but, and they have their own, you know, uh, and they're constantly at war with anybody who's not in their faction. Um, but within the faction, they are, you know, try to be, you know, develop a really cultic loyalty sense. So, um, you know, and, and to some extent, you, you saw underneath the covers a little bit in on the t- on the tv side of things in 2016 because 2016 people like sean hannity and most right-wing media actually hated donald trump mm-hmm. uh, and they liked ted cruz and in fact like some of them and again going back to the religion like glenn beck literally said that he believed god had ordained ted cruz to be the president uh and like he literally said this and and now, um, and now he won't shut up about how great Trump is. Yeah. Well, and, and so, no, and so, like, they were just enraged that Trump had come along as this, you know, flagrantly amoral, non-religious uh, liar. Uh, and they didn't have a problem with lying necessarily, but, you know, it's he's just such a flagrant liar that it's it's just annoying if he if you're opposing him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, and so, um, you know, they were just... They were biting, you know, gritting their teeth in private about how much they hated Trump. They hated Trump. Conservatives did. And um, but then, you know, once he once he won, they were like, well, all right, um, you know, we hate Hillary Clinton more. So we're going to do whatever he says. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and that's basically kind of goes to their organizational structure, which is there's this phrase um, that that it, people say sometimes Democrats fall in love with their candidates and Republicans fall in line. Um, Interesting. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty accurate to my experience. Kind of is, although I guess a, a lot of people weren't really falling in love with Joe Biden this time. 
Um, not as much. But on the other, now. yeah. Although on the other hand, now that he's in office, I think a lot of uh, Democrats are starting to like him a lot more. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I think all of us were just so shell shocked by four years of of trauma that we couldn't mm-hmm. really love anybody anymore. <laughs> we had, you know. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, that's probably a more healthy. Uh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. A healthy way to regard <laughs> yes. your political figures. I mean, yes. you know, I was. I mean, I was a, a conservative, you know, back when Obama first came along in 2008. But, you know, I was and but I would like to think that even if I wasn't, um, I would have still been horrified at a lot of the adulation that he received yes. uh, at that time. I, I just I was so disturbed by it. Like people were making songs about this guy and making school children sing him. I was I was just like, this is a fucking cult. Like that was what I thought. <laughs> and then, of course, Trump came along and it was so much worse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, they, it's interesting because because Trump has been from a from a cult perspective it's actually been fascinating to watch this um because obama had a cult of personality a lot of politicians do you know they get they get these group they they get these groupies um but trump is something different you know because 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 trump became a kind of figure where anything he said became received wisdom Mm-hmm. And he was so clearly lying about almost everything he said that it was mm-hmm. it was almost like like you could just sort of feel half of America just flummoxed at how was this even happening? It felt so Twilight Zone-ish. And I wonder mm-hmm. if if the 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 people you mentioned um, or the GOP as a body felt similarly. You know, we're watching this phenomenon, not understanding what was happening or how all these people who were supposedly, you know, conservatives were just jumping on oh, yeah. board this train, you know? No, they they were. They were very upset by it. And, um, I, and I remember, uh, I think, you know, a number of people who went on later to go and work for Trump, like uh, Jenna Ellis. She was the woman who was standing behind Rudy Giuliani as his hair dye. Uh, went down his face. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, but she was a huge Ted Cruz fan and she's a, you know, open Christian supremacist um, who just hates all other perspectives uh, other than literalist uh, Protestantism. And, um, and so, you know, but she was just aghast at Trump uh, before he, before he won. And she wrote something on Twitter in 2015. It was something like, you know, Trump supporters, they don't care about anything uh, that's true. They don't care about facts. They don't care about anything. Like all they care about is worshiping him. Uh, she wrote that. And then she went and worked for the guy. Right. <laughs> um, right. But, but, and of course, the reason that, that so many of these former never Trumpers went and went around and started, you know, worshiping him is that, you know, it goes back to their religious motivations that Trump, you know, he became, you know, whether whatever they thought about him as a person, he was the guy that they had to get behind in their battle with Satan. <laughs> right. Well, that's and that speaks to the motivation spoken of um, in the family documentary. Charlotte puts forward that, you know, it's the King David legend. And yeah, King David's a dick. I mean, he's just this like womanizing, serial, philanderer, murderer, horrible person. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But he's God's anointed chosen guy, so he's the guy we're going to follow. Is that how you have seen this play out? Oh, yeah. No, and, and some people have explicitly made that statement that you just yeah. said. Um, you know, the pastors and whatnot. But they even came up with another justification for him uh, where they compared him uh, to uh, this this king who was— um, uh, who so the, the the Bible has this book called the Book of Esther. It's a fable about a woman who supposedly, and she didn't exist, uh, but she was supposedly became the uh, uh, the the wife of the uh, Persian king Cyrus, um, and he was a ter- you know terrible guy, killed people, wasn't even Jewish, uh, didn't believe in their religion. Uh, but he married her as, or took her as a concubine or something. I'm not sure what it was, but, Mm -hmm. um, but in the end decided, you know, he became very useful to the people of Israel. Um, and, uh, so he ended up serving them, even though he didn't believe in their cause. And so a lot of, of more, you know, biblically literate, uh, fundamentalist came to construe Trump as a King Cyrus of our times. Uh, and like people have literally written books with that thesis. And, and some guy even made a coin, a gold coin with Cyrus on one side and Trump on the other side. Wow. Wow. Uh, so he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. So it's all good. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, and like a lot of people who, you know, aren't familiar with this cultic, type of politics, you know, it was so befuddling to them that they would, uh, to see, you know, a lot of these white evangelicals and fundamentalists just go all in for somebody who was so different from them. Um, but then, and, but it was such an easy thing to, to realize why it would happen if you knew what their real motivations were like, Mm. you know, the, the, the motivation. So like, for instance, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, well, the reason that they like Trump is that they're all a bunch of racists, you know, Mm -hmm. just like he is. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but for them, for, yeah, and that's certainly true probably for some of them, but the vast majority of them don't really know, you know, they don't think about race and many of them live in areas where there are no people other than white people. So (laughs) it's not like it's something that is even in exists in their life. Um, but for them, you know, they're, sense of having their holy war, their jihad, um, that's, you know, that's what matters. And even if they don't go to church, it doesn't matter to them. Uh, What matters is that he's protecting the system that privileged their, you know, people like them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and, you know, and and Trump explicitly made that as a campaign promise when he was running in in 2016, because a lot of you know, he was trying to get people on board with them. And, you know, the most of the people in the religious right, even after he won the, um, became the presumptive Republican nominee, they still weren't backing him, really. And so he went to uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who, of course, since had his own problems. But uh, at the time, you know, he was in charge of Liberty University and he was welcoming Trump there. And, you know, Trump got up on the stage and said, you know, if you guys vote for me, Christianity will have power again in America. Like it was just a flagrant power play, yep. will to power uh, pitch. Yep. Um, and, you know, and, and ultimately that, like it's easy when you understand what it was really about. That the makes support. sense. 
that makes sense because it also it also contextualizes why Pence was chosen and it and it puts in perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah just how all these folks were 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 following him and the religious angle of it uh and also um the bunk it, it also it, it, sort of puts it validates the bunker mentality these people must be in to follow somebody of such low moral character yeah, it's, well, it's and so it also explains why they kept supporting. Him. Yeah, yeah, uh, double even down amidst on it. all the scandals because their media was telling them we have to support this guy, right? Because he's God's servant, exactly. Um, and so don't don't you know miss don't don't uh, waver in your support for for our divine mission here. That's right, but it's it speaks to the desperation of the movement to a degree that they have to become such blatant hypocrites. I mean, there there is no way I can believe, you know, I don't hate these people. I don't have a chip on my shoulder about them. I I, I want everybody to get along. So I'm, I'm, I'm really more upset about the, 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 um, what's the word I would use here? Well, just the lack of integrity. I mean, you know, it's like, you're going to claim you have these values. Don't corrupt and twist them around to make something make sense that just doesn't make any sense. And and Trump being in power made no sense whatsoever. The man's a malignant narcissist and a pathological liar. He shouldn't be anywhere near the nuclear codes. And 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 that's what I was nail-biting for four years over, <laughs> you know? Uh, the religious component wasn't really my biggest problem, but... You know, this is what enabled a person like that to get into power. And so, you know, I didn't start my channel to talk about politics, but when when the cultic activity is so flagrant, I can't help but comment on it. And it was quite interesting and surprising to watch the the backlash I got over the last many years over that, you know, about about how strong people's reactions were on it. While at the yeah. same time claiming there's nothing cultic going on here. I'm not in a cult. And you're like, okay. All right, you're right. I yeah. have no idea what I'm talking about, so I'll just shut the fuck up. You know. Yeah. Well, and and isn't it interesting also though that um, during the Trump administration, Scientology, you know, the leaders and the prominent, you know, donors and whatnot became much closer to Republicans yes, they did. Um, than ever before, and they basically have effectively aligned with them mm-hmm. uh, as their, you know, as their religion. Uh, as their political party of choice. And so, um, and it's something that, you know, that's a, I don't know that anybody's written about that, but it is something that I do want to write about. Um, And I'm going to, I'm also going to write a piece about how that's that same, um, you know, moral upheaval or cognitive dissonance that you were talking about, you know, we've been talking about with Trump and, and, and white evangelicals. It's also actually taking place here in California where I live with regard to the, uh, you know, gubernatorial recall um, mm-hmm. campaign effort of uh, against um, the Newsom. governor here and Gavin Newsom. And, you know, so Republicans, the leading Republican candidate to replace Gavin Newsom is Caitlyn Jenner, a transgender woman. Uh, and so, like, that's how desperate that Republicans are. Like that they are putting forward somebody who is personally in every way <laughs> antithetical to everything they supposedly believe in um, 
but they're going to vote for her. <laughs> Isn't it mind-boggling? Again, it's just flummoxing. You're just flummoxed by it. You just go, what? How is this even happening? I swear, I feel like I'm in a Twilight Zone episode. Um, we should bring back the Twilight Zone. It's just, it would probably just be a reality show now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of. That way. Well, let me let yeah. me move toward wrapping up here because we've been at this for a while and this has been a great talk and I really appreciated your time. I, I did have another kind of big tent thing to talk about though with you, which I wanted to ask you about. And that is, um, I think we might be losing sight of something important uh, in the debate, in the discourse that goes on. And and maybe this is a reflection of the tribalism and the bunker mentalities that both sides are feeling, at least in the media. I don't know in the real world that we're at each other's throats the same way we are in the social media world. I don't really see or experience that. But um, but I don't live in the big city or, you know, do, do, do things in, the, in, in D.C. or anything like that. But my point that where I, what I wanted to ask you about is I see conservatism and liberalism as values, as philosophical principles that, that, that make a spectrum that is a necessary spectrum of, of thought. You know, you, you can't have optimism, eternal optimism without pessimism. You can't, mm -hmm. you, you just can't, you know, the optimist will fly off the cliff thinking he can fly. Optimists are not known for always acknowledging facts, right? This is, you know, so you need the pessimist to pull you back down sometime and go, no, 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 it's good you want to, you know, do this and this, but let's let's temper it with some reality. And vice versa, the pessimist will often be too pessimistic and never get anything done because they won't reach at all. And they need an optimist to push them forward, right? That kind of thinking. And so I see this as a yin-yang thing, and I see conservatism and liberalism as defining values that are that are that are necessary for us to to get along as a society. What do you think about what I just said? Yeah, um, well, I absolutely agree that there is, you know, a need for a a balance in our perspectives, um, and as you said, you know the. There needs to there need to be limits to optimism and uh, and also to pessimism as well and you know that's uh, and so the conservative tradition you know theoretic you know usually is more leaning toward keeping an eye on what is possible um, and what's not um, and you know the conservative political tradition the philosophical tradition is not inherently religious at all exactly um, and in fact you could argue that um you know conservatism at its core is anti-religious in a sense because it is skeptical of human wisdom or you know the things that people believe are true or are possible but that also extends to religion as well um and religious claims that um, and, and, and then there are, are, if you look through the history of conservatism, um, David Hume, who was the one of the most famous atheists, was also a conservative. Um, and um, if you look at other prominent people who are cited by conservatives today as authority figures, you know, they were not religious or, you know, avowedly secular like Montesquieu, the French political philosopher or. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, like Thomas Jefferson literally made his own version of the New Testament in which he stripped out all miraculous claims about Jesus. That's right. Uh, 
that was how committed to not being a Christian he was. And uh, George Washington, you know, he uh, actually made it a point to never take communion uh, during the latter years of his life. He explicitly stopped showing up for church on communion Sundays because the pastor had asked him, because uh, in his practice before that had been to walk up and leave when they were doing communion, he would just literally leave the church. And the pastor was like, you are causing a really dis- a big disruption here every time you do that. And he was like, okay, sorry, I won't do it again. So he just stopped showing <laughs> he just up. Stopped showing up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, and so, um, so conservatism as a philosophy is not inherently religious. Um, but in America, that tradition has been captured uh and, you know, perverted to a form of religious reactionaryism. Um, and so it's not, it isn't a philosophy anymore now. It's, it is, you know, a mechanism for achieving power. Um, that's all it is. And so if we had a more reasonable and grounded conservatism that is, it, you know, going back, circles back to what it was originally intended to be, then it would be uh, more beneficial because, you know, it's certainly the case that, you know, people who are on the left side of the aisle don't have all the answers. And, you know, the idea that, you know, I mean, there are a number of ideas that I disagree with um, on the part of, you know, of, of progressivism or socialism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it, and the various strains of it. Um, I don't think it's all true. And um, people should have the space to you know, have a uh, explore how those ideas could be improved or just discarded or whatever, or alternatives to construct it. But as it is now, uh, American conservatism is, as I said, it's it's just a, a vehicle for political dominance or religious dominance uh, more than anything else. And so, if we, if uh, you know, and, and that's why I do think it's incumbent upon people who are business leaders or, uh, you know, who are concerned about economic stability and uh, business climate, that they have to take back the Republican Party because they paid for this. They right. created this with their money because they wanted lower taxes and they got in bed with insane fundamentalists. And, you know, a lot of businesses are now coming to the point where they're like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be giving money to people who tried to overthrow democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe (laughs) we shouldn't be giving money to organizations that want to you know, take away the rights of, of lesbians and gays. Um, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, but they need to take it a step further and say, well, not only should we stop giving money to people who advance these terrible beliefs, we should also help people who are, you know, more moderate, reasonable conservatives to take back and to elevate them uh, so that they can actually have uh the means because that's the thing is that in the United States there is no financial um, support for moderate conservatism as it currently exists there are lots of people who want that and who would vote for it um, and in fact the, the the secret of Donald Trump's initial support in the Republican primary was that he had support for from uh, liberal and moderate Republicans based on his past as a Democrat. 
and a critic of the uh, Bush-Iraq war and some of the other things that the Republican Party had done. Mm. That was how Trump got started and his political support. But he completely betrayed those people who put him on the map. Um, and in fact, um, his political career actually, it, before he got started in politics, um, there was a company that there, there, that, that uh, makes these things called Q scores for celebrities, and they had uh, they have Q basically it's like public opinion about entertainment figures, and they were tracking Donald Trump before he in, uh, had a political career, and what they found was that the people who liked him the most were Democrats, they were uh, African Americans and Hispanics, like white Republicans didn't like Donald Trump um, before he uh, attained political power. And so uh, and so he just totally betrayed them and uh, the people who, who really helped him get going. And that's, you know, there's still a market for that. People want that, they'll vote for that. Um, but it's expensive to get that off the ground. And the only people who can do that are the business leaders who paid for the fundamentals to get started. Good point. Very good point. What would you say you've been kind of like me? Because, you know, my background as a Scientologist was a conservative background. Hubbard, Hubbard had conservative, even libertarian values, I've said. Very anti-tax, very anti-government in many ways, although not an anarchist. He liked order uh, and organization, but he did not like getting taxed. And, um, and so anything pushing in that direction was generally accepted and liked by Scientologists. And so I used to be a ditto head. You know, in, in, the, in the early 90s, as a staff member of Scientology, I was very conservative. And then, you know, the Sea Org happened and I wasn't anything because I was just so isolated. I didn't care about politics in any way. And coming out of that, you know, I start looking at things from a much more liberal progressive perspective, and, and that's been very interesting. And so I've kind of had both views, and I feel more centered than I do, you know, really on either side or the other. You came out, you know, very strong conservative with your website and stuff and have changed your values over the years. How has that gone for you, and what do you think from this perspective of having been on both sides, that the left could be doing significantly better right now in dealing with the problems we've been talking about in this episode here? Yeah, um, well, I think, um, you know, being, you know, people on the left side of the aisle have kind of, to a large degree, abandoned the, the desire to explain themselves, um, to explain their ideas and why they make sense. Um, you know, there's such a focus on, oh, well, we have to counter disinformation, uh, but you have to explain why you want something. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you can say, some people might say, oh, well, it's obvious that people deserve healthcare or things like that. And, you know, and, and, but you still need to make the case because a lot of people who have healthcare from their jobs or something like that, or are on you know Medicare or something, for them, they don't have to worry about it, and so they don't consider the idea that you know what it would be like to not have it uh, because they've always had it, and so uh, you know whether they've always been employed or you know always had their own business, whatever, um, and so to. So there is a great need to explain the idea of pluralism as well, I think, and the idea of, of moral pragmatism 
uh, which you know is a very strong component of the of the liberal tradition, uh, but you don't really see a lot of discussions about that nowadays. I think um, among progressive commentators, they just you know they just say, well, this is this is true, you know, and and you have to either you're for us or against us, and and that's very dogmatic and and it's not accepting um and it isn't a way to 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 get people to come to your side who have had a different perspective um is what i would say that's a great point that's a very good point i agree with you on that gets yeah and and then and sorry and and if i can extend it just a little bit in in to say that so you know i do think that it is important to not give social, you know, not to pay for, for companies not to pay to give platforms to, you know, extremist people like deplatforming is important and, and good in a lot of cases. But at the same time, you know, there are plenty of people who have just dumb ideas, but they're not dangerous. Right. And their ideas need to be beat down. <laughs> exactly. Like, they need to be beat down intellectually uh, because, right. you know, you've got these people like Steven Crowder or Ben. Sh- I mean, these guys are intellectual half weights. Uh, they have no idea what they're talking about. And uh, they need to be, you know, engaged with and put in their place because, you know, basically they've convinced millions of people that they're smart and that's bad. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely, especially the likes of Shapiro. I mean, I don't think he's dangerous. I just think he's an idiot. And But he, he uses such big words as a Harvard-trained lawyer, and his gishkalop is so crafted that he looks like he comes off well in debates when he doesn't. He he, he, he doesn't make good points, and he doesn't make them well. But, but people well, and don't he also, know he what never that, debates. you know. Yeah, and he also never debates anybody who's actually qualified. <laughs> That's part of his He's, strategy. To make yeah, he, look he good. goes out there and mixes it up with with uh, college freshmen, and gosh, he can beat a college freshman in de- in a debate. Wow, <laughs> right. amazing! <laughs> exactly, exactly. It just gets tiresome after a while watching this. The disingenuousness of it is because I because it, it, it's difficult for me to watch manipulative tactics call and call it debate when it's when it's just it's not an intellectual exercise it's a it's a rhetoric exercise and there's a huge Mm -hmm. difference in those two things um that's really exhausting and annoying but it but it doesn't help the public discourse at all if that's presented as intellectual or this is an example of what we think is a is a is a is a smart person doing acting in a smart way you know, it, mm. it just brings the whole thing down, I think. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But I do think that um, we are seeing interesting, you know, there are negatives to the um, to the rise of the blogosphere and the and YouTube and long form interviews we see via podcasting, you know, as epitomized by Rogan. But I think there's a lot of pluses there, too, because I think we're filling a niche that the news media has drop the ball on and that is the long form information presentation you know apparently this is still a thing in europe you can go and watch politicians and scientists debate and talk for hours on tv over there but in america it's unheard of yeah well and and it's it's largely a function of that our our media environment is is handed over to people whose only objective is making money i mean like 
I mean, think about it. If, you know, people always say, oh, we live in the information age. Well, then why doesn't the government give a shit who is giving out information? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, do you think it has something to do with the old fogey problem? The fact that so many people in Congress, the people who literally are responsible at a federal level for passing legislation that makes sense. Do you think they are just out of touch technologically, uh, you know, and it's really taken this long for them to catch up? Uh, I think there's, that's definitely a part of it. Um, yeah, that they don't understand what's going on. I mean, you just watch any hearing on Capitol Hill where, where they will have a tech executive. They will go up and ask ignorant questions at, at the person, total waste of time yeah. uh, for hours. Um, and, you know, and they, and they let these people get away with stuff uh, in the course of that, of these hearings, because they don't know enough to, to hold them accountable. Um, so there's, that's definitely a huge factor. But also, I think it's that um, it's preferable. This environment is preferable for them because uh, when you have an uh, interview in you know uh, environment where the person can just sit there and spew nonsense for two minutes and not answer the question, uh, not you know uh, advance an intellectual framework or it evince any sort of a general understanding or or concern um, for the, for public welfare, um, then that's easier for for them and they don't get put on the spot. They don't get revealed as not knowing anything or they don't get revealed as being misinformed or or, you know, uninformed about their own legislation. Like I, as a reporter, you know, I had uh, several politicians tell me that I knew more about their bills than they did. Right. Uh, and that's a terrible thing. <laughs> when you're I the guy like voting on it, you that should not be something you tell me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Last question then, and then I'll let you go. Um you know, you see antics on social media or in media, news media, Ted Cruz, you know, going off mm -hmm. to Cancun, getting into fights with AOC or celebrities on Twitter or things like this. Just antics, just shenanigans, just stupid uh -huh. stuff that's got nothing to do with his job, demeans him, demeans the, the position that he's in as a United States senator. He's not the only one. I'm just using him as an example here. Because um, he generally regularly is trotted out as seeming to be somebody who's quite willing to go make a horse's ass out of himself. And I wonder, is that by design or is he really a horse's ass? I mean, you wonder how much of this is showmanship versus, you know, pre is it premeditated or is it just, oh, they really are that that dumb? I mean, you have to wonder sometimes because I, I have a hard time when I really sit and think about it. You know, Ted Cruz is a is a constitutionally he's a lawyer. He's a, he's a, he's he's a lawyer. He's a constitutional lawyer. He's well educated, but is he? <laughs> you know, what's your take on this? Is you have more of an insider view on this stuff than I do? What do you? How do you see this as play when you see these things play out? Um. Well, it's yeah. It no, you. Uh, that is becoming increasingly hard to, to perceive. And that is, um, so a lot of conservative uh, politicians have indeed, as you said, you know, cultivated this, um, you know, deliberately 
uh, anti-intellectual or trollish mm-hmm. uh, behavior. And they've, they have, it's something that has really actually been present through the entirety of, of American conservatism. So like, mm-hmm. uh, just to go back to William F. Buckley. Uh, and I do that because he was so influential. Um, and he, um, um, you know, he made it a regular practice to say outrageous things to get publicity for himself. And one of the things that he did was, um, you know, like he literally threatened to assault um, a liberal that he was debating on ABC News in, in the uh, 1970s. Uh, Gore Vidal, the author, uh, oh, was paired yeah. with him on several debates. And 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 if you remember, there was a exchange where he, he threatened to to uh, sock him in the mouth uh, and using a vulgar epithet for a uh, gay person um, Wow! in that. And so... Yeah, and, and, and so this pugilistic, um, you know, bullying demeanor uh, is, has been there from the very beginning. And, you know, and of course, Buckley certainly was an educated person as well um, and knew a lot um, of words and had the best words to use Trump's phrase. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's partly it's deliberate, um, but partly it isn't. Um, and it's increased. It's becoming as conservatism in the United States has become increasingly dumbed down and you know extremist. Um, the line between deliberate provocation and ignorant, stupid, you know, active ignorance, malicious ignorance, um, it's probably it's leaning more and more toward the latter rather than the former. Wow, I would say that's a real uh, shame. But you know, you never know. It's that's at least maybe part of why these people keep getting booked on cable television. <laughs> yeah, no, that's for sure. That's for sure. Awesome. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be a guest on my show and, and give me this w- wonderful answers you've given today. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. It was it was my pleasure. Absolutely. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up. So, uh, Matthew, where do people find you? Where I'm going to put the links in the show notes here, but where should they go? Um, sure. Well, uh, my website is called Flux, and the address for that is uh, flux dot community. And we're building up a uh, a different type of media platform, uh, a platform for ideas and for uh, voices that are not typically uh, included in the mainstream media. Um, and so that's you know we're looking for di- uh, diversity of experience, of geography, of of race, you know, gender. Uh, sexuality, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to mix things up. So we've got people who are, um, you know, very religious, huh? people who are not religious, people who are um, somewhere in between. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we're trying to create a community of ideas. So I, I really hope uh, people can join us for that. Awesome. All right. Flux.community. Check it out. And with that, we will wrap up our show for this week. So, uh, of course, if you're enjoying the show and the channel and what I'm doing, consider supporting me through Patreon. Otherwise, I will see you guys here next week. Thank you very much for inviting us into your home. Bye-bye.